You're listening to The Drag. The story you're about to hear contains brief mentions of physical violence that are gruesome and disturbing in nature. Please keep this in mind as you continue to listen to this podcast. It's 6.45 a.m. on March 2nd, 2018 in Austin, Texas. Sean Phillips gets out of bed and wakes up his children, ages 6 and 8. He heads downstairs and sinks back into his living room couch, waiting for them to get ready before he drives them to elementary school. He's in his early 40s and has three piercings on his nose alone and tattoos that crawl from his toes to his temples. His look can be intimidating. Once, a bar even refused him entry because of it. But if you look closer, his eyes reveal the gentle father he is at home. His hair hangs past his shoulders, but it's usually swept up into a ponytail or bun for convenience. Sometimes, it's his natural tone of ashy brown, and sometimes it's dyed bright colors. He works as a body piercer, which kind of explains things, and his wife is a tattoo artist. Despite their edgy, outward appearance, they live a pretty low-key lifestyle with their son and daughter in a two-story brick home. Sean sits on his couch in the living room. It's 6.50 a.m., and he's waiting for his kids to come downstairs when he hears a loud boom. He sprints outside, mind spinning. He looks for the source of the noise and is met with a sight he'll never forget. Next door, his neighbor, Anthony Stefan House, who goes by Stefan, stands in his front doorway. He'd stepped outside to have a cigarette, like he does every morning. He's a 39-year-old black man who lives with his wife and daughter. Sean and Stefan know each other. Their daughters are friends but the neighbors aren't standing on their porches to say good morning over a cup of coffee. Instead, Sean sees his neighbor covered in blood, shrapnel lodged throughout his body. His hands look as if they've been nearly blown off, and a gash separates the lower part of his face. Weeks later, in a lengthy Facebook post, Sean will write that it looks like Stefan had been hit by an axe. Stefan's eyes are open, but glazed over. He turns his head towards Sean, then collapses. 911, do you need to Hey, uh, I don't know what's going on. My neighbor, uh, something exploded or something. He's, there's blood everywhere. We need an ambulance immediately. Sean can't tell if Stefan is breathing. He rushes to his side and delivers one, then two rescue breaths. He knows chest compressions could help save Stefan's life, but one look at his chest and he's forced to change his mind. There's too much damage, too much shrapnel. Chest compressions could do even more harm to Stefan's already lacerated body. Stefan gasps. The rescue breaths worked, at least a little bit. Sean screams his neighbor's name to no response. Is he breathing? Yeah, he's definitely breathing. Uh he is breathing. Okay, good. Now I want you to look at him. I want you to say now every single time he takes a breath in, starting immediately. Now. Keep going. 
She sucks. Has he took another breath or not? No. Okay, keep going. Every single breath, tell me so we make sure he's breathing enough. No. Keep going. Do not stop. No. Keep going. No. Keep going. No. More of Sean and Stefan's neighbors make their way outside. And it's chaos. Everyone's on the street. One neighbor rushes inside Stefan's house to make sure nothing is on fire. Another tends to Stefan's eight-year-old daughter, who is screaming, My daddy's dead. My daddy's dead. It sounded like, hold on, it sounded like an explosion, but what actually happened was your neighbor fell down? I don't know what happened, ma'am. I do not know. I have no idea. His daughter's hysterical. He's on the ground with blood. I heard the explosion. There's a smoke alarm. There's blood everywhere. You're listening to Season 2 of Darkness. I'm Ashley Miznazi. This is the story of the Austin serial bombings of 2018, when a man terrorized the city over the course of 19 days. These six episodes will give you a closer look at the chaos that surrounded Austin and how the bombings changed lives and exacerbated racial wounds, all against the backdrop of Austin's biggest festival of the year. Back in Stefan's neighborhood, emergency services have arrived at the scene of the explosion. As medics rush to the front porch, Sean positions Stefan to keep him from drowning in his own blood. The first medic on scene looks at Stefan and asks, is he even alive? To which Sean replies, yes, he's breathing. Now, why don't you keep it that way? Minutes ago, Sean and Stefan were just being fathers to their children getting them ready for school, and probably already looking forward to picking them up at the end of the day. Now, in a blink of an eye, they're both covered in blood, and one is being carried into an ambulance. Adam, so it's like Medic 29, transport, CPR still in progress. Law enforcement officers evacuate the surrounding homes. Police tape blocks both sidewalks along the street. Nobody can get in or out. By now, local news reporters have descended on the scene, and even more investigators continue to file in. This this looks like a pipe bomb or something. Yeah, there's shrapnel everywhere. Then, as medics rush his neighbor to the hospital, Sean remembers his morning isn't over. He still needs to take his children to school, and luckily there's just enough time. As they leave in the car, Sean explains their neighbor was in a bad accident. He keeps it vague, not to alarm his children, but he hasn't realized there's blood covering his clothes. He's in shock. He tells his daughter that she should make a card for Stefan's daughter because she's going to need her support. She's just been through something awful. Sean reassures his daughter that he thinks Stefan's going to be okay, but neither of them know if he's telling the truth. At the hospital, the ambulance doors swing open. As doctors rush Stefan to an operating room to save his life, the Austin Police Department bomb squad secures everything within a meter of Stefan. His clothes, the ambulance, even the hospital hallway. 
Bomb technicians are gathering evidence from Stefan's body. They're looking for information about the shrapnel to relay back to investigators at Stefan's house. And they're worried there might be undetonated bombs at the scene. Nobody knows if this was an accident or something more sinister. A package exploded. I mean, I have no doubt about it. There's, there's, cardboard, there's cardboard box pieces um, and there's shrapnel all over the place, like screws, um, staples. Yeah, like it was a pipe bomb or something that was in the package. Brian Manley works in his office at police headquarters in downtown Austin. For just over a year, he's been the interim chief of the Austin Police Department since the previous chief left the job for the same role in Houston. The city outside his window is a place Manley has called home since he was a boy. Before he moved to Austin, his family shuffled between Texas and New Jersey. He joined the Austin Police Department in 1991, a decision he made as a teenager after taking a law enforcement class at Johnston High School. He started as a patrol officer, and after more than 25 years of service, he'd made his way to the top office at APD. As he sits in his office, he answers emails left over from last night. He prepares for today's meetings. Then he gets news of the explosion. Typically living in a city setting like this, when you hear of an explosion, the first things that come to mind is, you know, a water heater explosion or someone maybe using a torch or something too close to a combustible. You don't think about an IED, an explosive device. It's just not something we've seen in our community before to any great extent and really across the country. Explosions don't happen often, but when they do, every agency you can think of responds to the emergency. The Austin Police Department, the Austin Fire Department, and EMS arrive at Stefan House's neighborhood. Even federal agencies get involved, like the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, also known as the ATF. And by the time Interim Chief Manley arrives at the scene, the FBI is already there, collecting evidence. Again, explosions are really uncommon. So this wasn't a run-of-the-mill Friday for Austin police. Well, it was very concerning, again, because that is not something that typically happens in any city, uh, and again, not here in Austin, to my memory, and a lot of thoughts. You know, it's a bomb. What was the purpose of the bomb? Is it an individual act? Is it an intentional act? Is it part of a larger attack? There's so many questions that were unanswered. I remember driving to the scene, listening to all the radio traffic. We were getting more units responding, um, and we were setting up perimeters, uh, putting up the tape to keep people back. Um, And then, of course, arriving, it's trying to restore order to uh, what was a very chaotic scene at that time. ATF case agent Dan Muller also joins the investigators on scene, and his morning started out a little different than Chief Manley's. Instead of answering emails, Muller was at a local chain restaurant called Rudy's Barbecue, eating a breakfast taco. Then he gets a call about the explosion. He rushes to Stefan's home, and there's shrapnel everywhere. It's kind of like if you gave your laptop to a 10-year-old with a hammer. The pieces will all still be there, but they'll be much smaller. And so, 
you know, that's what I saw when I saw the blood and all the pieces was there's evidence right there. It was on the front porch. It was contained and uh, which enabled us to uh, have a better collection. Agent Muller and his team of investigators crawl on their hands and knees through the grass in Stefan's front yard, collecting every piece of evidence they can find. They're looking for anything that can indicate what caused the explosion. In the early stages of an investigation of this scale, no detail is too small. We're sending out, you know, people canvassing the neighborhood for cameras. Uh, we're pairing up ATF agents and FBI agents to go knock on doors, asking if you saw anything, that kind of stuff. So right away, you, you start that process of, of gathering information, and we typically just are working together. All these different agencies working on a scene, it can get a little frenzied. But the Austin Police Department takes the lead on the investigation with help from the feds. The various agents swarming the scene have countless questions to answer. Do the neighbors know anything? What was the bomb made of? Was this an accident? What caused the explosion? What actually happened here. To create violence by bombing is, is about as high order as you can go in regards to trying to cause mayhem or trying to hurt somebody. Um, and so it's not common and it's, it's significant and it's, um, it's, it takes a lot of planning and preparation to construct the device, plan it, activate it, or have it activated. So it's, it's not like just getting mad at someone grabbing a gun and, and going after them. One of the earliest theories is that the explosion could have been related to a drug bust in the neighborhood. One police officer on the scene mentions the narcotics team recently seized drugs in $324,000 just a couple doors down at a house that looks extremely similar to Stefan's. They're both made of red brick, they're both one-story homes with two-car garages, and they both have dark-colored pickup trucks in the driveway. At this stage in the investigation, Agent Muller thinks somebody could have targeted the house that got busted as revenge and simply mix them up. Sometimes people get really mad when their financial investment in narcotics is missing, if you will. And so uh, that was one of the initial hypotheses is, hey, did someone try to exact revenge on the person at that house and just got the house wrong? Here's FBI case agent Justin Wilson. He was one of the agents who worked the Olympic Park bombing in 1996. And now more than 20 years later, he's on the scene of another bombing. He was the first federal agent to arrive on scene minutes after the explosion at Stefan's home. He found out about the explosion from a coworker. And, um, you know, usually when the, when the phone rings around 7 in the morning, that's not a good sign. Uh, I, you know, you're praying that your buddy's saying, hey, can you pick me up at the car shop so I can hop a ride into work or something, but unfortunately Scott called and his first words were, where are you? And that, that indicated, yeah, something, something bad's going on. He sees someone walk out that other brick house, the site of the drug sweep, and walks over with Agent Muller to interview him. He says the guy seemed nice. But when you lose a quarter of a million dollars of other people's money, they tend to have a little lesser nice look on, on about that, you know, especially in a, in a drug dealing business. So, um, but, uh, ended up as, uh, y'all probably already know that ended up being a rabbit trail that 
wasn't the right one. As local, state, and federal agents swarm the scene, Sean Phillips, the neighbor who called 911, returns from dropping off his kids at school. He still has Stefan's blood on his hands, on his clothes, but his priority is checking on Stefan's eight-year-old daughter. A neighbor has taken her in, and Sean rushes to the neighbor's house, ducking into a bathroom to clean up. He doesn't want Stefan's daughter to see her father's blood. She's calmed down since the explosion, and she sits a few rooms away, watching the cartoon show Captain Underpants and playing with the neighbor's baby. Everyone we talk to describes Stefan's daughter as extremely mature for her age. Here's Narelle Wainwood, a close family friend who refers to himself as Stefan's brother, talking about Stefan's daughter. She was never discourteous. She was never rude. You know what I'm saying? She's just a little girl. That's it. The maturity. It's like, wait, why do you, you're eight. But she was there. She was fully there. She wasn't distracted. She wasn't off in the corner. Just poor me. Big girl pants. Like personified. Honestly, she kind of lended a lot of strength to the family. Because everybody's trying to be strong for her. But she was intended to be strong for everyone else. Her character's going to be extremely tough and strong. You're not going to be able to break her. Because if that didn't break her at eight, yeah, you got, you're going to do, you got a strong woman on your hands. Stefan's wife, Shannon Johnson, is an elementary school teacher. Before the blast, she had already left for work. Sean realizes she has no idea what happened to her husband. Problem is, Sean doesn't know Shannon's phone number and Stefan's daughter only knows how to call her by using a smart speaker. So Sean frantically searches online for contact information and leaves a panicked voicemail for Shannon at the school where she works. Sean tries to reach Shannon, and when she finally calls him back, she still doesn't know what happened. So Sean delivers the hardest news he's ever had to deliver. Stefan had been in a tragic accident. To this day, Stefan's loved ones don't understand why officials hadn't contacted them, why Shannon had to hear the news from Sean. Here's Narelle, Stefan's family friend and self-proclaimed brother, again. That's the crazy part. Like, why wouldn't you say something? Like, that should be the first person you contact. Not just because of your girl, not just because of the husband, just because your house has been just blown up. Like... Would you not think to call the other resident of the home the, and the mother, who's also the wife? What Sean doesn't know as he's on the phone with Shannon, what he and the rest of the city of Austin will soon find out, is that Shannon's husband, Anthony Stephen House, died in the hospital at 7.48 a.m., less than an hour after the bomb went off. After Shannon receives the news of her husband's death, she immediately calls Stefan's mother. My name is Melanie House Dixon. I am the mother of Anthony Stefan House. Melanie is a grandmother, but you can't tell by looking at her. She wears hip clothing, like cheetah print, and has short hair cropped at her ears with a highlighted bang going down the side of her face. Her voice is soft and sweet, but her presence is confident. When she speaks to you, 
she doesn't break eye contact once. Norell calls her, quote, the embodiment of tough love. When I think about Melanie, the word that comes to my mind is like matriarch. She's definitely a matriarch type. Melanie's first son, Corey, died in 1994. Any parent will say their worst fear is losing their child, and now Melanie is living the unimaginable. She's going through it a second time. She's driving when she gets the call from Stefan's wife, Shannon. I got a call from my uh, my daughter-in-law that said that Stefan was going to the hospital. And I'm saying, well, what, what, going to the hospital for what? And they said, well, she said, well, they didn't tell me. I said, well, what hospital is he going to? And they said, the Round Rock. Um, the Round Rock, I said, Round Rock? But we live in Pflugerville. And um, what scared me the most in this chill, my body just went numb, was when she said that um, she was told that he was barely breathing. And I'm saying, barely breathing from what? And I'm saying, what? What is going on? She couldn't tell me. So I I dashed from from um, taking my daughter to school, my, grand, my great-granddaughter to school over to the Round Rock Hospital. And when I get there, I'm saying, my son has been brought in here. Where is he? They're telling me, no, he hasn't been brought in. So I'm saying, but my, I was just told that he was brought here. So where is, where is, he was there, but because of the, the incident, they were not allowed to tell me or show me or to even acknowledge that he was there. Melanie knows her son has been gravely injured. She knows investigators are currently swarming in and out of his house, trying to piece together what happened. But she doesn't know that her son was pronounced dead over an hour ago. She's on the phone with Stefan's wife when... There were cars, ambulance, FBI, police departments over at, my, over at his house. And that's when they didn't know that I was on the phone. That is when one of the police officers told my daughter that, um, that, that, he was, that he was dead. That's when I heard it on the phone. The entire house, all I could do was just wail. And I'm saying, what, what, what happened? Melanie sits in the hospital and listens as someone from victim services begins to explain what happened, that her son died. She fields phone calls from family members across the country. Everyone's wondering what happened, including Melanie. Stefan's family friend, Norell Wainwood, is in New Mexico for work, but he jumps in his car and drives back to Texas immediately after Melanie calls him with the news. And so we drove straight home. They dropped me off at home. I jumped in the car. I packed a few bags, jumped in the car, and was gone. She didn't know what was happening. She just know that something happened to Stefan. He's in the hospital. They won't let me see him. You heard Norell's deep voice. And he's tall, around 6'5". He has an eyebrow piercing with a chain trailing to his left earring. And it reflects his bold character well. He's an artist, and we interviewed him in his own boutique, where he sells custom-made masks, clothes, and accessories. Every time we talk to him... He's constantly cracking jokes. For someone who wasn't dealt the easiest cards in life, you can't see it in him. 
Norell grew up in a foster home in Pflugerville, a suburb northeast of Austin. He became friends with Stefan's older brother, Corey. Norell was 13 when he met Stefan, who was around the same age. They were classmates. Stefan was, I could be a badass, but I'm going to kill you on these grades, and I'm going to kick your ass on any sport you want to play. Norell looked up to Stefan as he became a star athlete and a great runner. They spent time training together and grew inseparable. Norell felt like a part of their family, and they considered him family too. Norell often didn't have nice clothes because he was in foster care, so Stefan shared his clothes. Stefan took care of Norell, and Norell took care of him. They weren't related by blood, but they were brothers. Yeah, we talk all day. We talk all day. And see, and it's crazy because at that time, we really resembled each other a lot. And so people thought we were brothers that didn't know us or like, hey, that's your brother? And that knew him or that knew only me. And so we just became brothers, like might as well. Like we're around each other all the time. Love you to death, you love me to death. Your mom loves me, welcome me in the house. We resemble each other, that's my brother. He didn't care about what society told him he couldn't do. That was his inspiration. He was the type to overcome any obstacle. His tenacity was nuts. Like, I've never been addicted to winning as much until I met Stefan and seen how he hated to lose. And after that, it's like, whoa, I don't want to lose either. Norell lived with Stefan's family in high school. Then he reconnected with his biological mother and lived with her for a while in Abilene, Texas. That's where he was in April 1994 when he heard Stefan's older brother, Corey, had been murdered. After Corey died, Norell returned to Austin to take care of Stefan and the house family. In the years that followed, he drifted in and out of Stefan's life physically, leaving for work occasionally and serving time in prison on a burglary charge. But the friends kept in touch. A lot of Stefan and Norell's connection in adulthood was based around long phone calls. Norell told us he will treasure the memories of those conversations forever. He also has two matching leather jackets, one's his and one's Stefan's. The matching jackets made them feel connected despite their miles apart. Norell's jacket is fully intact, but Stefan's isn't. When the bomb detonated on Stefan's front porch, the inside of his home was mostly unaffected by the explosion. But the dining room window on the front side of the house shattered. Stefan's leather jacket hung on the back of a dining room chair, pierced by the shrapnel from the blast. When we interviewed Stefan's mother, Melanie, she talked about the values she wanted to instill in her son as he grew into a man. Since Stefan's death, she can see her son pass along those lessons to his daughter. Being honorable, being true to yourself, because if you're true to yourself, then you can absolutely be true to someone else. Respect, and, and having empathy and sympathy for others. Education was, was one of the top of my list. I mean, because we are all entrepreneurs in our family, basically. 
um, getting what you know, educating yourself, and then taking what you have and working for it for yourself. Melanie taught Stefan that it was okay to have different opinions, as long as he can back them up. He was very smart and he was very outspoken. And he, I mean, it wasn't to the, he wasn't outspoken to the point where it was, um, and in a negative out kind of outspoken, but he was just, he would just speak his mind. He, he was a, he was a, a vast reader. Stefan majored in finance at Texas State University, and he wanted to become a broker. He managed several construction sites around Austin. He always liked keeping himself busy, starting and stopping new side projects, but he'd almost always finish them. One of the projects was working with Melanie to renovate her home in East Austin. She finds beauty in almost everything, and it's obvious by the way she decorates. When you walk into her house, you're greeted by a bright living room surrounded by windows. Along the fireplace mantle and shelves, she showcases artifacts collected from her travels to Africa. There's a grandfather clock in the corner that chimes every 15 minutes. It's unlike the other pieces, but it dominates the space with its presence. The beating heart of the home Stefan helped build. It, it, it was a whole new design. Um, we built walls in that were not there. We filled in, we, we, we just re, reinvented, redesigned the entire center part of this house. And I miss that. Put in new baseboards, I fold the walls. I mean, we, he just helped with everything. I design sometimes and he paints. So, but we have that history in our background. You know, um, his dad is in, is in construction. So he, we grew up, he grew up in a construction environment. It's now the afternoon of March 2nd. Interim Chief Manley stands under an overcast sky in the middle of Haverford Drive. He's wearing an all-black police uniform with stars on his collar and badges on each shoulder. There are two agents standing on each side of Manley, wearing khakis under coats with yellow letters, FBI on one, ATF on another. Police cars and emergency vehicles line both sides of the curb behind them, and reporters gather in front of them, eager for answers. He shuffles a yellow legal pad in his hands as he waits for reporters to set up their mics. He says the bombing seems like an isolated incident, with no real reason to believe it's an act of terrorism, or that there's any cause for alarm. Based on what we know right now, we have no reason to believe this is anything beyond an isolated incident that took place at this resident, and no reason to believe that this is in any way linked to a terrorist act. This brings some relief, but it's only been a few hours. The investigation team is still searching for the cause of the explosion. And again, in an abundance of caution, trying to understand this, we reach out to all of our providers that deliver mail in this area, both the U.S. Postal Service and those that do it privately, because that is one of the things we want to know is, was there a package delivered to this residence in the past several days? Because we still are trying to work to understand what happened, what the device was, and where it came from. Following that press briefing, not much happens in the investigation. Three days pass, and no more bombs are reported in Austin, so the police decide to have another press conference. This time, it's more formal. Assistant Police Chief Joseph Chacon 
will lead it this time at the Austin Police Headquarters. Investigators now know the explosive device was a package, but they still don't know much else. I think what's important to talk about today is that, um, you know, anytime we have a bomb go off like that and somebody dies, the first thing that people think is terrorism. Um, while we cannot uh, completely rule it out at this point, we do not believe that, the, that terrorism is an incident at this point. So they're not calling it terrorism, and they can't call it a homicide either. Here's Assistant Chief Chacon at that press conference explaining why. So um, we cannot rule out that the intent, I mean, it's just too early right now to figure out. Obviously, it was intended to harm somebody, but we can't rule out that Mr. House didn't construct this himself and then accidentally detonate it, in which case it would be an accidental death. The cause of the bombing isn't clear to the public. Investigators can't get their story straight. And the victim's family doesn't know much more either. Here's Stefan's mother, Melanie, again. When it happened on that Friday, that whole weekend until that Monday was horrible. That much I remember. I remember just not sleeping. I remember wanting to know what's going on. I remember calling, uh, talking to, we had a, um, uh, a person from APD that was kind of over our case. And so I remember trying to call them, not being able to get into anyone, not being able to talk to anyone, leaving messages. Um, so if you ask me how I felt, I was a, I was a basket case. Um, emotionally and physically from not sleeping, not eating for three days. Melanie doesn't know Police are considering the possibility that her son had created the bomb himself. She won't know until she hears Assistant Chief Chacon mention it at the press conference. We found out about it like everyone else did, watching the 6 o'clock news. It was on the 6 o'clock news. In fact, she's barely heard from investigators at all. And Melanie isn't pleased that investigators are speculating to the media. I, I don't know how I felt. I was emotionally wiped out. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I was just existing. I was doing things and saying things. I don't even know what I was. I, I can't even tell you. If I look back now, I can't tell you what I did. I was just going through the motions. I, I can't articulate anything that I did. I, just, I was just kind of following orders and trying to figure out why did all this happen? You know, I, I, I can't remember. Investigators still don't know what happened. They've announced a $10,000 reward for any information about the incident. Here's Norell. He's insulted by the reward amount. The crazy part about that is how your life means so little that they choose revenue over you. It was really, a, it really wasn't a slap to the face for me, because I'm from the bottoms, so I know how people feel about the bottoms. Or, and to a lot of people, black people are the bottoms. A young man in Pflugerville 
a suburb northeast of Austin, attends a birthday party at his pastor's house the night of the bomb that killed Stefan. He grew up going to the non-denominational Austin Stone Community Church every Sunday. Now, 23 years old, he's a devout atheist, but he still attends Bible study every week to debate with other attendants and challenge them to prove their faith. He's the only one who knows what's about to come. Next, on season two of Darkness. Oh, I need a EMS, please. Okay, hold on. Anyone take you out of the Something said, look, let's follow the fikes. What do we have? Now, we have two people that are dead in a, in a close proximity, east of I-35 and East Austin, and, and that's what we have, but nobody really wanted to say that. They kept saying, well, we don't know yet. We were looking at terrorism just because, quite frankly, that's the only thing that made sense. Season two of Darkness is reported, hosted, written, and directed by me, Ashley Miznazi. This podcast is presented by The Drag, a student-run audio production house at the University of Texas at Austin's Moody College of Communication. Katie Penchik-Outka and Robert Quigley are the executive producers. This podcast was also reported and written by Kenny Jones. The editor is Katie Penchik-Outka. The associate producers are Austin Cheatham, Libby Cohen, Alexandra Curry-Buckner, Cecilia Garzella, Gregory Gonzalez, Anastasia Goodwin, Jay Kerman, Jackie Ibarra, Marian Navarro, Ileana Rowland, Sarah Schleed, Aiden Snazdell, and Harrison Young. Their artwork was created by Helen Holsey. Christian McDonald is the drag's technical director. A huge thank you to Leslie Schrock for all of her support and guidance. I also want to thank Jay Bernhardt, Kathleen McElroy, Rachel Davis Mercy, Allison Dawson, Kathleen Mabley, Emily Quigley, Jay Whitman, Eric Tang, Robert Vilwalk, and Ryan Outka. Special thanks to Grace Spees, Marcus Crum, Raul Garcia, Dylan Lee, Jennifer Robbins, Tasha Turner, Amanda Cisneros, Jenny Nelson Gray, and Tiffany Ma. The Drag is a nonprofit educational organization that is made possible by donors like you. Please support our work by going to thedragaudio.com/donate. Every dollar goes directly to producing more content like this while giving students an amazing educational experience. Thank you.